Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It is the 1st of September, and we've got a great show. David Wheaton's going to be coming on in just a minute. Then Dr. Don Byerly is going to be joining me after David, and then a full hour with um, Dr. David Trout-Lamb. So it's David, Don, David today. It's going to be a great string of Ds. There's lots of Ds in the show today, so I'm looking forward to that. And we're starting our Old Testament series today, which probably will last at least a year Dr. Peter Kapster and I are going to be mining the Old Testament for characters of the Old Testament. We're going to learn all kinds of stuff about characters and people from the Old Testament that we may not know a lot about. But we will, a year from now, be Old Testament experts, I think. Yeah, that's the plan. All right, David Wheaton is going to continue his uh, study, How Epic Exodus Displays the Awesome God. We started this several months ago, and... I think we're almost uh, through Exodus 8 and 9. We're going to go into 10 today. David, of course, is the host of the Christian Worldview. He's an author. He's a a writer. He's a um, former professional tennis player and friend of mine. Always glad to have him on. David, welcome. Hey, it's good to be with you today, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited about our our Exodus study. I'm learning a lot, and I think it's time, uh, if you don't mind, if we can just do a little review uh, from chapters eight and nine, we did deal with a bunch of plagues. Let's uh, let's <laughs> let's review those because those are kind of fun. Yeah, a bunch of plagues. There was actually going to be ten of them, and so we were well into these now. And you know, for someone who hasn't been listening to the series, uh, you know, here we have Moses and the nation of Israel down in Egypt. Um, God has called them to go back up into the promised land. They've been enslaved. They're oppressed in Egypt under Pharaoh and the, the Egyptians. They're in bondage and slavery, just doing all the work for the Egyptians. And they're, they're groaning under this. And so God calls Moses out of the wilderness. He was there trying to get away from Egypt uh, because he was. Uh, they were trying to seek his life. So he comes back at 80 years old, and he and his brother Aaron are going to, to lead the people out of Egypt. So, But the Pharaoh's not really wanting to let them go. He, he realized this is this is a workforce that he has there. They're, they're building all the significant um, things in Egypt, and it's like uh, he's not going to let this economic boon go to waste uh, so easily. And so God starts sending these plagues. And the interesting thing about the plagues, Bill, is that each plague shatters or just destroys something that Pharaoh and the Egyptians, that either they worship, they were false worship, false God worshipers, or that's something they hold dear. And these little details that we read in these chapters as we've been going through, you know, Exodus 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 today, uh, there's little details in each of these plagues that reveal something about the character of God and the nature of ourselves, nature of man, which are very interesting to see. So it's not just, oh, here's one plague, then here's the next one. There are little details that that God uh, predetermined to put in Scripture that would teach us something about his character and nature. And it's also interesting, Bill, how each of these plagues that God uses Moses and Aaron to start them. You ever thought of that? In other words, God didn't just start the plague himself. He used Moses and Aaron as his spokesperson uh, to start the plague. In other words, believers or Christians are God's ambassadors, it says in the New Testament, for God. And so God is 
shaping Moses, and by extension all believers, who are used by him through the work he calls us to do. So God could have done all this on his own and not even had Moses and Aaron, but he chose not to do that, and he chose to use them uh, to show his power because he was not only doing work in Pharaoh and the Egyptians with all these horrible plagues coming upon them, but he was also doing work in preparing Moses and Aaron and others for the leadership they would be needing as they, they led the people eventually out of Egypt. So we've gone over these plagues, the, the first one, the Nile turned to blood, and the second one, frogs over the land, the third one, biting insects or gnats, the fourth one, swarms of flies, the fifth one, the Egyptian livestock die, the sixth one, the boils on man and animal, and then there's this interlude between the sixth and seventh plague where God actually says why he's doing this. He's, why is he doing these plagues? He says, I am the greatest God. No one's like me. And he's actually showing his mercy. He's giving Pharaoh and the Egyptians time to repent. He starts telling them that these plagues are going to come tomorrow. In other words, you have time to still repent and, and let my people go. So in the midst of these judgments, God is actually showing his mercy. And then the last one we talked about last week was the seventh plague, which was hail, that really destroyed all the crops in the land. And uh, again, at this point, Egypt is almost completely destroyed, but it's still going to take three more plagues before Pharaoh softens his heart, or not softens his heart, actually relents and is forced to let the people leave. Mm-hmm. And David, when you said that there were parts of God's uh, character in each one of these plagues, I, that is so fascinating. That's been a really a great part of the study. It, it very much is. And like I mentioned, just, just about... You can look at these and say, "Wow, what a harsh God!" Um, but you could also look at these and say, "What a patient God!" You know, he's you know he, he could have immediately destroyed Egypt uh, for all their sin for not letting his people go. He could have done things far worse, mm-hmm. but he kind of kept ratcheting up the pressure on them, giving them time to acknowledge him, and he is the true God. Again, he was trying to work in their lives as well. They were sun worshipers. They had all thousands of gods. They worshipped frogs and all these plagues that were happening usually had something to do with something they worshipped. The Nile River was their their means of life. They worshipped the Nile because that was their lifeblood of their economy and everything else. So they God was giving them time to repent as he gives us time to repent today. He doesn't he doesn't generally uh, kill us and judge us the, 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 the first time we sin, but he puts conviction on our hearts so that we'll come to understand that we've offended him. And then he's also provided a way that we can be forgiven and made right with him through sending his son Jesus to die in our place on the cross to pay the penalty we deserve to play. So God is showing this, this patience and this, 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 this reconciliation even in the midst of these, these plagues of judgment. Mm-hmm. David, what is the difference uh, between worldly sorrow and true repentance? I think this is a great topic to discuss yeah. today. This is a really important question, you know, for us today, because, you know, sometimes when we do something wrong, we sin, uh, there's worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow, it says in uh, 2 Corinthians 7, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So apparently there's two kinds of repentance or two kinds of sorrow over sin. The sorrow of the world is, I am disappointed at the consequences that my sin has caused me. It's inconvenienced me. It's led to bad outcomes. The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. In other words, it's about, I am so sorry I did this. I'm grieved, because not because how it's affected me, but it's how it's offended 
the God who created me. And so that's the difference. And, and the sorrow of the world, you know, Judas had the sorrow of the world. He was disappointed that he had, you know, he, he felt guilty for b- betraying Jesus. But then he, what, what do you do? He went out and killed himself, committed suicide. So obviously that's, that kind of sorrow wasn't, I repent, I'm wrong, I'm turning to God in, in, in repentance and faith. It was just he was sorrowful over what he had done. But the, the repentance that, that leads to salvation is one where, God, I'm so sorry I have sinned so greatly against you. I don't deserve anything. I don't make any rationalization for my sin. I don't try to do any negotiation for my sin. It's just true repentance. I want to turn from it, God. Help me go in a new direction. I know only through putting my faith in Christ can I have the Holy Spirit that will help me overcome the temptation that led me into sin in the past. So that's what we see with with Pharaoh. Several times now, as we get into plague, I think four, five, six, somewhere in the middle plagues, he starts saying, oh, I have sinned this time, this time, as if I didn't sin previous times. You know, the Lord is the righteous one. This isn't true repentance he is having. He's trying to get out from under the consequences of the plagues. He's not softening his heart in true repentance and turning to God in faith. And David, didn't Joseph do a an amazing job of modeling that awareness of uh, who he would be sinning against when it came to his exchange with Potiphar's wife. Excellent point. We went over that in in Genesis that that was a man who feared God when he was when he was tempted with with sexual sin te- by the uh, the wife of uh, his master, the the one he served, Potiphar, in his house. Uh, he said, how could I do this great wickedness? In other words, you know, lie with you. That's what she had said mm-hmm. to him. How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, right there is, is the proper mentality, the proper response to when we're tempted. It wasn't like, I, I can't do this because, you know, you might get pregnant or I might get in trouble. I mean, your husband might might hate me. I might lose my job. Right. All this worldly, that's worldly sorrow. That, that's worldly sorrow, mm-hmm. right? The godly sorrow is, is the one that says, I do not want to do this, and I will not do this through the power of the Spirit, because I don't want to offend the Holy God uh, who gives me life and breath. And so you see this in, in, in Pharaoh time and time again through these plagues. If your listeners read some of these, you'll see how Pharaoh relents. Okay, you can go and worship now, but don't go very far away. Okay, another plague comes. Okay, you can go and worship now, but leave your little ones at home. Or you can go and worship now, but you know, stay close to Egypt. In other words, there are these, I have sinned, but— that's not repentance. There's no, there's no excusing our sin in, in true repentance, and, and that's what Pharaoh was showing, how it's a, it's, a, it's a worldly sorrow rather than a godly repentance. Mm-hmm. So, David, is God responsible for hardening Pharaoh's heart? Yeah, so this is something that we've, we've discussed a couple of different times, and I think it's important to discuss it actually again, because it keeps on coming up over and over, almost after every plague— the Bible will say, well, um, Pharaoh hardened his heart and wouldn't let the people go. Usually the plague would come, and then there would be, he would ask Moses to stop the plague, or the plague would go away. So there's relief from the, the discomfort of the plague, and then Pharaoh would just harden his heart. But you can't ignore the fact that in several cases, like in Exodus chapter 10, uh, it says, uh, the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs among them. And he says that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them. 
that you may know that I am the Lord. And, and again, here's the point of how we learn about God's character and nature. We don't think of a God as like he's trying to shame people. He's trying to make a mock. This, this, this is the God we serve, the one who's trying to. Well, yeah, he does, because he is the God that deserves all of our praise and worship. He won't he won't share his glory with anyone else. And so the Egyptians, they are mocking God and rejecting him. God is not going to allow that. And so it actually says here that God hardened, or I hardened, God speaking, Pharaoh's heart. But we also know from Scripture that God doesn't tempt anyone or lead them into sin. God never does that. So God is not making Pharaoh sin, so how does this work? Well, what this is, this is the same thing that's occurring in Romans chapter 1, where we see this phrase repeated, God is giving them over, giving them over. It's repeated in Romans chapter 1, where he gives a, a sinful society, a sinful heart over, gives them over. This is a form of God's judgment, where he removes his restraint from someone, so in essence, they begin to sin worse, and their heart gets harder. So God is re responsible, yes, for removing his restraint, but he's not. But the result is their heart gets harder, and God is saying that, I have hardened his heart. That just means he's removing his restraint, so they go even deeper into sin. Mm -hmm. David, I need to take a break, but you've got me all curious now. I mean, why, why don't I want to address this when I come back, but why— why is a proud person just not able to see what's so obvious to everybody else? It's right. uh, something I will address when I come back with David Wheaton. We're continuing our study in Exodus. We call it the Epic Exodus Displays the Awesome God and Boy, is He Awesome. Be right back. to the christianworldview.org. It's a fantastic website. Uh, the Christian Worldview. Think biblically, live accordingly. Mm. That's the motto. I love that, David. Mm. All right, let's talk about this uh, idea of a, a proud person who just really can't see what's obvious to everyone else. Yeah, you know, here, here we are coming up on the eighth plague. So there's been seven horrific plagues, mm -hmm. and Pharaoh still won't let them go. And you think, what does it matter? With, I mean, what, what is it going to take? And it just shows how hard and rebellious our hearts can be, how hard the human heart can be. And in other words, you would think at this point that Pharaoh would, would be crying out to God in repentance and, and, and faith, believing. I mean, these are miraculous things happening to Egypt. It wasn't like this was just natural phenomenon. Nothing like this had ever been seen in Egypt. Nothing like this has been seen since. And so this finally, before the eighth plague starts, there's another warning. Moses and Aaron says in Exodus 10, 3, it says, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go, behold, tomorrow, again, giving him time, I will bring locusts into your territory. And he goes into how the locusts will be everywhere, they'll eat everything, everything's going to be destroyed. And after they say this, Pharaoh's servants, it said in verse 7 of chapter 10, said to Pharaoh, 
how long? He says the same thing that God said. God said, how long will you refuse to humble yourself for me? Now Pharaoh's servants are saying the same thing to him. How long will this man be a snare to us? To us? Let the men go, that they may serve their Lord, their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? You know, again, not only is it you know, God saying this to Moses, uh, Pharaoh now, it's Moses or Pharaoh's own servants saying this to him. And it just shows you this really is how long will you refuse to humble yourself? This really is the fundamental question for every person, especially for the non-believer. Our, our pride says that our sin is not that bad, or we're not a sinner, or God doesn't exist, or I can do it my own way, or I can I can work my own way to heaven. But the question is, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? To be saved, you must humble yourself and get on your knees, figuratively, literally too, if you want. In your heart, you must humble yourself and say, you're right. God is right. He is holy. I am a sinner. I've offended him. And the only way that I can be right with him is through the gift he's offering me of forgiveness, of reconciliation, through what Jesus Christ did on my behalf on that cross. He paid the, the sin penalty, the death penalty I deserved in my place so that God's wrath over my sin and his justice over my sin could be fully satisfied. And God says, if you believe in that, if you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, that God will save you. So how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me is, is God's question to to Pharaoh, and that's the question we all should be asking, especially if we're a non-believer and need to come to saving faith. And meanwhile, his his servants are kind of asking the same how long question as well. And so Pharaoh kind of says, well, maybe I should let them go. I guess now I'm being double teamed by God and my, and my servants. He brings them back in, and again, he tries to put conditions on them. Oh, you're not going to take your little little ones and your women with you to worship. So again, he doesn't, no, not true repentance again. He hardens his heart. He doesn't recognize reality. And it's really the same thing that goes on in our society today. No matter how bad things get, no matter how immoral, how wicked, how you know oppressive, how everything else is going on in society, people just harden their hearts. They refuse to repent. And we shouldn't do that. I know there was a time in my life that I was doing the same thing. Thankfully, God convicted me and led me to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And true repentance, which is fantastic. Right. Yeah. David, it's hard talking about these plagues. They're daunting. Uh, I mean, I had a mosquito in an air-conditioned camper once, and I was a mess. But <laughs> when we're looking at the locusts, I mean, this was all-consuming to the point where the land was darkened. Let's talk about that eighth plague some more. Yeah, well, the locust, that's in Exodus 10, starts in verse 12, and he says to Moses, again, he has Moses do it, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts that they may come up from the land of Egypt and eat every plant mm. of the land even all that the hail has left. The hail came and destroyed all kinds of crops. There was hardly anything green uh, left in the land of Egypt. Now the locusts come, and they just take over. Now, locusts were, were known at that particular time. You know, they come in, they eat stuff, but never had been like this, where literally uh, the land, it says in verse 15, the land was darkened. There were so many locusts, and they ate every plant of the field and all the fruit mm. of the trees, everything that the hail had left. Thus, nothing green was left on tree or plant on or of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And so right after this happens, verse 16, 
Pharaoh immediately, he says, hurriedly <laughs> called for Moses and Aaron. He's looking outside, probably can just imagine <laughs> this is like everything's gone. Yeah. And he, and he says again, I have sinned against the Lord, your God, and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive me my sin only this one to make supplication for me. So maybe he's beginning to realize that he's going to lose power, you know, because now the land's being totally destroyed, or maybe someone's going to assassinate him because this guy's so crazy he can't see what's obvious, or something because you know he's persisted this long and something bad's going to happen to him. He may lose power. Uh, and so the locusts are taken away, and what does Pharaoh do again? Well, it's what he's done in the previous plagues. He, he hardens his heart again, and then immediately the ninth plague comes. Mm-hmm. I want to interject this comment, David, because this is uh, so smart from a listener. My wingman, Terry, said, with a little reading into Egyptian history, the pharaohs were considered sons of the gods. So mm-hmm. with each plague, the Lord was uh, stripping away any projected divinity the pharaoh might have possessed. And the last one, taking away the first male son, God couldn't have made his attack any clearer. That That's exactly right. Every single plague destroyed something that the Egyptians held dear. And like that, that email our listener just told you, even Pharaoh himself, I mean, think how much he was being diminished. They, they treated him as a god. Mm-hmm. Like when they died, he went to be with the gods, Pharaoh did. And Pharaoh was a, was a, was a title. Uh, so there was lots of pharaohs, you know, not at one time, it was one at the time, but he was the king, basically, and they believed he to, him to be a god. That's why they mummified them and did all the things they did after they, the pharaohs died. And so think how much he was diminished. And then we're, as we're going to get to coming up in, you know, in the coming weeks, you know, when they go in the Red Sea part and his whole, his whole army gets lost, Pharaoh couldn't have been any kind of a god anymore. He must have seemed like a pretty pathetic god to the people of Egypt after everything was completely destroyed in the land. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the ninth plague, darkness over the land. We only have a couple minutes left. Yeah, this is this is the, we'll go faster over this one. This is the last one where darkness, and it's the way the way it's described is it says, "Stretch out your hand toward the sky." The Lord says to Moses, "So there may be darkness over the land, even a darkness which may be felt." You know, in other words, have you have you ever been in such a dark space where there's absolutely no light? It's so dark, it just it feels like heavy, mm-hmm. like you've been in a cave. I remember I went to Israel once. We went in the tunnel of Hezekiah, under was the water shaft that was that fed water in Jerusalem, and there was this quarter mile. I mean, it is like as they say, it's as dark as the inside of a cow in there. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and this darkness can be felt. And so again, this toppled one of their big gods. It was the sun god Ra. And this lasted three days. And so this was the kind of the final straw, the final regular plagues of the nine before we get into the last plague, which is the death of the firstborn, which, which was the plague of all plagues mm-hmm. that eventually led to the sons of Israel being able to, to get out of Egypt and go to the promised land. Yeah, that's great, David. We'll pick, pick that up next time as we continue our epic Exodus uh, study. Thank you, David. Uh, have a great rest of the day. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, David Wheaton has been my guest. Go to the ChristianWorldview.org to learn more about David. We're going to continue this study on Exodus for months and months and months and months. After a break, we're going to have Dr. Don Byerly. He's going to answer a lot of why questions. Looking forward to that. Be right back.
Okay, so I absolutely love this show today. I was just chatting with Rosie, and it's like we're going to do Bible study, apologetics, and then more Bible study. That is a perfect day in my world. So glad to have Dr. Don Barley on the program. He is the executive uh, leader. He's offered that executive leadership to Faith Search for 35 years. He's written a book called Surprised by Faith, which I have, I don't know, five copies of, because I always want a copy on hand to give away to somebody in case they start asking me questions that I can't answer. So I always sit down on them, which I think is a very nice thing to do. Um, He's with me on the program today. Don, welcome. Hey, thank you, Bill. Good to be with you. Yeah. Well, let's just say the kids, uh, students are back in school and, boy, they've got questions. So if I can maybe throw some questions your way, you can maybe do some apologetics training with us to help better respond to some of these questions. Yeah. You know, uh, when you say apologetics, there are some folks out there say, oh, Don's going to be apologizing. (laughs) Is that it? (laughs) <laughs> no. And uh, they may not be acquainted with the with the term, but uh, it's uh, it's uh, affirming the truthfulness of the Christian faith is what really I'm all about in ministry. And actually, uh, Bill, it's uh, no longer 35. I've been at this for 43 years with Faith Search International. So I was off by seven years, and you're yeah. so graceful to me. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, you know, it's important that we all know how to defend our faith, and we, we get questions, and some of them are gotcha questions, and they can be intimidating to people. Um, so maybe we can talk about some why questions, and I'll throw you some questions, and you can maybe give us some response, which I know will be helpful to me and everyone else who's listening. So um, sure. let me ask you this, Don. Let, let me just say, why would I want to be a Christian when there are so many hypocrites? Well, uh, first of all, I would suggest to someone who says that, uh, congratulations. Uh, uh, Jesus himself very <laughs> disliked, <clears throat> excuse me, disliked hypocrites. Hmm. Uh, he, he talked to the uh, Pharisees and he said, uh, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So you're in, you're in good territory when you don't like hypocrisy, and no one really should, because what a hypocrite is is someone who is pretending to be what they aren't. They're they're a sham. They're a phony, uh, but parading some sort of a superficial um, superiority. So if that's what the person thinks about Christians, of course, uh, I would be on their side if that were true. However, we have to distinguish between uh, a person who makes a mistake, who sins, Compared to someone who is a hypocrite, not everyone who makes mistakes, not everyone who is imperfect is a hypocrite. If that were the case, we would have 100% hypocrites, wouldn't we? Yeah. Uh, Whether you're a believer, a Christian, or a Muslim, or a Jew, no matter who you are, you are a hypocrite then. So we have to distinguish between just simply making mistakes and, and being a hypocrite, because what this really telling us about the person asking about hypocrisy they think that when someone says, I'm a Christian, they mean they're perfect. Uh, mm. And as soon as they make a mistake, ha, gotcha. That means you're no different than the rest of us. Well, in that sense, a Christian is quick to agree. We're not. We're not different. It's just that we are forgiven 
and and that doesn't disqualify Christianity because someone has made a mistake. Well, that's at least, Bill, my first response. There's a couple more things that I could say about that. Please do. Well, Christianity is validated on the basis of the person of Jesus Christ, not whether I'm perfect or whether I'm living out my life in perfect. It, it would certainly be expected that someone who's a follower of Jesus Christ should, uh, you know, bear more fruit of the Spirit than they do of the flesh. I, I, I completely agree with that. But Christianity stands or falls on the basis of whether Jesus Christ is the real real genuine article. Mm -hmm. And that's where apologetics comes in. And that is, I can investigate the person of Jesus Christ. And keep in mind, my faith is only as good as the object of my faith. So when a Muslim is is talking about their faith, it's only as good as Muhammad uh, or Allah, uh, whatever it is that their faith is in. Ours is only as good as Jesus Christ. And therefore, Jesus, because he was a historical, because he came in the incarnation, lived here for 30-some years, we have a chance. And of course, we have eyewitnesses who were with him and eyewitnesses who recorded what he said and did. We can investigate Jesus to determine whether or not he is genuine. So getting back to our point, uh, hypocrisy has to do with the person who's professing faith, but Christianity does not rise or fall on whether they are a perfect representative of Christianity or not. Christianity is true or false based on whether Jesus Christ is who he claims to be, whether he rose from the dead, conquered sin and death. Those are the things that someone who's claiming hypocrisy also needs to be accountable to, and not just say, I'm not going to become a Christian because I know someone who's a fraud. Uh, No, go and check out Jesus to make sure. And then lastly, I would simply say that hypocrisy has a cure. Uh, uh, If I were talking to someone, I would try to be humble about it, but it was only Jesus who was without sin. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And he died on the cross for my sin, for my inability to live a perfect life, and took my sin and gave me his forgiveness as I embraced him through faith. And as a result, it humbled me. And I was able to take off the mask, trying to pretend to be something I wasn't. And through my faith in Jesus Christ, I was able to be honest and transparent and genuine. And and so those are some of the things apologists would likely say to a person who is concerned about hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Don, to even be eligible to be a hypocrite, you have to stand for something, right? I mean, if, if I was telling all my uh, work associates, I am never late. I'm always here right on time. And they yes. observed me over the course of three weeks showing up 10, 15 minutes late. They're going to go, he's a hypocrite. Sure. Well, you're right. Uh, in other words, <laughs> a failure is universal. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so that can hardly be the basis on which someone determines the legitimacy of the Christian faith. Yeah, so when people claim to be Christians, they, uh, you, like you say, they they— People think, well, the person thinks 
that the, you're perfect, which you're not. You're just forgiven. Or better, yeah. Or you think you're saying you're better than other people, right? But if you're guilty of some of the same issues or problems, then that sort of somehow disqualifies uh, your uh, faith, uh, and 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 it's unfortunate, uh, Bill. I I I wish it were true that there were no hypocrites. Yeah. among those who profess faith in Christ. But we know better than that, that there are those who have sort of blackened the eye of Christian faith. Uh, but that's not to say that I'm better than they are. Uh, I do fail too, but I try not to be a fraud. Mm-hmm. Don, here's a question that came in from uh, just on our text line right now. And I'm going to tap into not only your brain, but your your pastoral giftedness. If somebody comes and says, um, and this is the most devastating experience any person can go through, is the loss of a child. And their child is now gone. So the question would, you know, would basically be, why? Why did my son die? Yes. Well, Bill, you, I don't know if you know this or not. It's interesting that question would come in because my wife and I have two sons. One is in heaven and one is still here on earth. Uh, We lost our 44-year-old son uh, five years ago uh, to a drowning in the Pacific Ocean. So I'm I'm not going to be able to speak from an ivory tower. I'm speaking from experience. Uh, It was devastating. And so a person who has lost a loved one, it doesn't have to be a a son or daughter, it could be a, a sibling, it could be parents or whatever, uh, it's 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 tough. Uh, no one can say otherwise. But Paul makes it very clear when he writes to the Corinthian church, I believe it is, that we do not we do not uh, grieve as those who have no hope. Um, and I'm quick to add, I do not know how a non-Christian who has no assurance of life after death handles. A situation like the loss of a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, where is the hope? With my wife and I, at least, uh, we go to we go to First uh, Thessalonians, and I believe it's chapter three, and it says it when the time is coming, when the trumpet will sound, and the Lord Jesus Himself will return to earth, and He will be with Him. The Scripture says. He will bring with him those who have died previously, and then we will be caught up and joined with them in the clouds of heaven. In other words, my wife and I were comforted significantly by the fact that um, we're going to have a a reunion someday. Mm, We're going to see our son Steve again, and it will be forever. Now, that may not be apologetics. That's the promise of Scripture. But if the question is, why would God allow that? That's a different question, and and that's uh, why is there so much suffering and evil in the world, and why would God allow my son or my daughter to die? Um, (laughs) I don't know that, uh, Bill, any answer to that can ever truly quiet the the hurting heart. Mm, yeah. But we can try and, and point out that God grieves with us. Uh, and that may sound shallow, 
And they said, well, if he grieves, why didn't he do something about it? God does not control every movement of our lives. If he did, we'd all be unhappy because we, we would feel manipulated. We would not have free will. And so certain things occur in a world where sin has you know, become rampant. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, why is there death at all? Because Adam and Eve sinned and passed that sin on to all people subsequent to that. And as a result, we live in a fallen world. Let me let me um, read in in Romans chapter eight. Um, looking it up here quickly, he um, says in Romans eight nineteen, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Well, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is not the way God created it. And sin has taken its toll, and therefore we have sickness. I'm a biologist in addition to being a Christian evangelist. And in biology, we talk about the genetic load, the amount of mutation that is continuing to be added to the human genome is incredible. There are more and more diseases within our genetics. Uh, Why is that? Because the world is in mode of corruption. Hmm. And the only way God could stop that is to do it in a sense 100%. And he said, that is what he's going to do someday. He is coming back, and there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be no more death. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. But until then, we live in a fallen world where bad things happen even to good people, and death is one of those. Um, my my advice to anyone who is experiencing this is look to God for the answer to that grief. If you are not a Christian, you're missing out on what God has provided for you in that grief and for that in that suffering. And take advantage of it. Give your life to Jesus Christ who resurrected from the dead and said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. And Bill, that in that, I find the comfort. And that's what I would offer to people. Uh, and of course, it's dependent on whether they will follow Jesus Christ through faith or not. Mm, yes, beautiful, Don. Uh, thank you for that uh, godly wisdom, and biblical wisdom. Dr. Don Barley is my guest. You can go to faithsearch.org to learn more about Don and his ministry. When we come back, I want to ask him how I can be sure I will have life after death. Be right back.
I'm back with Dr. Don Byerly. He's from Faith Search International. FaithSearch.org is the website, and he's offering this pretty cool Tuesday night. Uh, Don, talk about this. It's a Q and A, six o'clock, seven o'clock. Yes, I have a live stream uh, broadcast on Facebook every Tuesday, uh, Central Daylight Time. It's from six o'clock till seven o'clock. Nice, and uh, it it can go if they have a Facebook. Uh, uh, membership, they can go there directly, or they can go to facesearch.org and uh, find through our website to go to that site. But in addition, of course, Facebook records all of those hour programs so that they can. I started last November nice. and going every week, and so they could go back and check the video recordings of any program. Uh, that that I do, yes. Uh, right now, I'm create. I created a series called "The Mighty Works of God: uh, Great Moments in History," and I'm tracing from the creation to His second coming in the new heaven and earth. I picked out 15 mighty works of God, uh, and I'm highlighting those in four uh, segments. And I'm my my, my concern, Bill, is that. The United States, France, Germany, all over the world, we are experiencing apostasy of people who cannot believe that God even exists. And, and, and it's amazing because God has been at work over and over and over again in history, and yet we, we deny all those and say, I can't believe that there is even a God that exists. So I'm I'm trying to create something that would appeal to people to say, oh, wait a minute, maybe I've just not been looking in the right place to see God. Mm -hmm. So, Don, how can I be sure I will have life after death? I know many wish or hope for eternal life after death, but they don't know if it's really true. Yeah, isn't that the truth? Uh, Wouldn't everyone want to? Uh, Oh, yeah. But so so many times it's, I hope, I hope, I hope. And the, the fatal flaw of of people who hope, 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 is that they're thinking that eternal life is based on works. Um, God, and I, I've been there. Uh, and I wasn't a Christian from the beginning. I didn't become a Christian until I was in my 20s. And I was in my PhD program in biology, uh, very much a skeptic. And uh, my view at that time would have been, uh, it's out of my hands. Uh, I can live my life and do the best I can, good works. Sometimes I I screw up, but God's the one after I die who's going to set up the balance and put my good deeds on one side and my mistakes on the other side. And as a result, uh, do I make it? That's up to God's judgment. Nothing could be further from the truth. The scripture has made it totally clear. The record, this is the record. God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. If you have the son, you have the life. If you do not have the son of God, you do not have the life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. See, it's not arrogance to say, if I died today, I'm going to be in heaven with the Lord. And some people would say, that's pretty arrogant. You think you're that good, huh? Mm. But see, their mistake is they're still basing it on works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So how can I have assurance then? If it isn't based on how much works I do, how many good deeds that I do. Well, 
Some people look at life after death from some of the circumstantial evidences. For example, uh, we, we know about the concept of, of uh, near-death experiences. And people come back and say, I went to heaven and I, was, I met Jesus and I met my relatives and so forth. And we base the possibility that there's life after death on stories like that. I mean, whole books, as you know, mm-hmm. have been written on those encounters. I'm not here to judge the truthfulness or not of that. But the question is, how can I be sure there is only one direct evidence for assurance of life after death? And that's one person did it. (laughs) The person of Jesus Christ, without question, went to the cross. He died three days later. He, he He was very much alive. He appeared to his apostles and disciples. He lived on earth for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. We have an empty tomb. We have the resurrection appearances. At least 10 of them are recorded in the four Gospels. Uh, We have eyewitness testimony. And then probably more subjectively, everyone that I know of that has truly confessed their sin, embraced Jesus Christ through faith, has had a transformed life. Mm -hmm. And that transformation doesn't matter if you're in Africa, Asia, North or South America. It is the testimony of those who have come to embrace Jesus Christ through faith, have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so that's the only, sure, give your life to Jesus Christ. And he is the one who said, as I said in the last segment, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. That's your assurance if you have faith in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Dr. Don Barley is my guest. So here's another gotcha question, Don. All right, what happens to those people who have never heard of Jesus? Yeah, uh, I get that all the time. Uh, I I wish I could always satisfy everyone Mm -hmm. who asks that question, because I'd like to be able to say, well, everybody is saved eventually. But that's not what the Bible says. And I I have to be faithful to the Word of God. Um, I believe that Scripture can give me this much support, that God wants to give every person a chance to know the truth. I have heard how many missionary stories over the years of people who have come from the field and said they were in a remote area, and someone came from miles and miles away, somehow directed by the Spirit of God, that there was a man of God somewhere in the distance. And they finally came, and the minute they told them about Jesus, they believed. Hmm. Uh, To me, that's God at work. Someone who is living in an area where they have no opportunity to hear, um, and he will give them that opportunity. Uh, God rewards those who diligently seek him, is what the Scripture says. However, the bad news is that sin in the world oftentimes will have consequences. If, if I sin, it's not always just private. For example, a drunk can, can uh, get in a car, believe they can drive that car, and they go down a highway, a wrong way, on a one-way street, crash headlong into another vehicle who were completely innocent. Maybe they weren't even believers. 
and that sin impacted their eternity. Uh, that's why sin is not private only. It oftentimes affects moms and dads who are on drugs, who are on alcohol, whatever, uh, can have a tremendous impact on the opportunities for their children mm-hmm. to have life after death because they may never hear about that. I, I think uh, sin is a horrible thing. Yeah. Don, we from the from from eternity. Yeah, the time sure flies when we're talking about our very favorite subject. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Appreciate having a chance to talk with you. Yeah, delight having you on, Doctor Don Byerly has been my guest. You can go to faithsearch.org to learn more about his amazing ministry, his great books, and this weekly event he does on Tuesdays at seven Central Time. Go to six. faith. I'm sorry, six faithsearch.org. Mm-hmm. We'll take Thanks, it. Bill. You bet, Don. Have a great rest of the day. We'll take a little break when we come back. Hour two is just ahead. We're starting our brand new series uh, with Dr. Peter Kapsner on Old Testament characters. We'll be right back with our special guest, Dr. David Trout Lamb. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.